rock and roll. Good morning. Thank you, team. Thank you for your time, your investment, your care in leading us. Trevor and the team, thank you guys so much. Um, good morning. My name is Ernie Wagoner. I'm the lead pastor here at Sojourn. Um, if you've got a first through third grader, they can head down this way. That's what's happening right here. Y'all have a good old time downstairs. Um, if you're new this morning um, and I haven't had the privilege to meet you, I would love to do so. If you haven't gotten a gift from us, would love to make that happen. So let's do that um, before you leave. Um, just wanted to mention just two really quick things, and, and then we're going to just hop into Ecclesiastes. Um, the first is uh, public apologies come because of a public mistake, and I publicly doubted the Braves, and so I want to publicly apologize for doubting the Braves. And so, cool. Uh, that's the first thing. And then the second thing, we do have a family gathering coming up um, this Wednesday, and that's just really important if you find Sojourn to be your home. Uh, we want to communicate with transparency. And that's when we do that on a, just a real practical level. We have time where all of our staff come up and share about things that are going on, things we're dreaming about, hoping about, hoping for this upcoming year. Uh, and so this uh, Wednesday at 6 o'clock, we're going to be doing that. And just would encourage you to make a priority. We're not going to have child care, um, but this is an opportunity maybe to divide and conquer if that uh, applies to your stage of life. Um, but make that a priority. It's just helpful. We want to present transparency, just knowing what's going on, what you guys can expect on the horizon. So that's that. We're going to be done by 730. It's not like we planned for the World Series, but we, we are going to be done before it starts. And so just letting you know that's going to be a hard 730. That's not like a soft 7.30, like that's a hard 7.30, 6 to 7.30. Uh, so again, just keeping everything in mind uh, for the glory of God. And so, um, awesome. We are in Ecclesiastes. Uh, if you haven't been tracking with us, then you're not aware of how uh, many warm fuzzies can come through Ecclesiastes. It's, again, just a wildly popular book. It's the book you typically go to when you just need a, a book to read. Uh, Ecclesiastes is what that is. And so, honestly, as I've just been navigating through, we're now, uh, time-wise, we're well beyond halfway through the book. We're going to kind of fly through the latter half um, leading up into Advent. Um, but may my hope for us so far is that we would, just pastorally speaking, would be that we would truly uh, heed the wisdom that's here and that we would, we would get off the treadmill a little bit and just kind of evaluate where we're going and are we just kind of reacting to life and kind of the things that we've been told to do all of our lives. Uh, man, I, I'm just praying and hoping that we would see the wisdom that Solomon's providing to us and saying maybe, maybe we need to refocus on some things in our lives. This is the wisdom that we so desperately need. Life is a vapor, and I'm praying that we would embrace the wisdom that's here. And so the last seven weeks up till today, we're going through Ecclesiastes 1 through 6, and then starting next week, just for the next uh, handful of weeks, we're going to be finishing out 7 through 12. And so 1 through 6 is Solomon's search for meaning, and we've experienced that along the way. And then 7 through 12 is, is kind of an application, um, kind of an engaging, some really practical advice that he's going to give. And so just encourage you to lean in. Uh, I've talked to several of you. Uh, this has been a lifeline for you in this season. So just continue to lean in here. I believe that God wants to speak to us. Cool. So today, um, Solomon is going to talk to us about money and about wealth. Uh, if anyone knew about money and wealth, and, and we'd want to hear from them, it would be Solomon. Again, he's worth $2.2 trillion. That's just a lot of zeros. And, and he's, so he knows a thing or two about money. He knows a thing or two about wealth. And, and so he's going to speak to us about such things 
um, this morning. Uh, he has much to say about it. Um, he's not going to tell you uh, what to do with your money. There's not like a cryptic commentary on investing in Bitcoin here. Like that's not the point of this morning and what he's going to share with us. But what he will share is a stabilizing message around how we ought to view money and wealth. And that's what he's going to provide to us. Kind of the point I want to give this morning is that eternity has been written upon our hearts. And therefore, we are made for more than accumulating wealth. We are made for something so much more. You know, Solomon doesn't mince any words, and neither does Jesus when it comes to conversation around wealth. And so you have this really rich, rich dude, Solomon, who gives us some insight on wisdom, but we also have the Son of God who didn't have much money. He also gives us a ton of wisdom on money. And so even as we kickstart, I just want to throw a couple of, of red-letter statements to us as we navigate through a conversation around wealth and money. And so just a few things that Jesus said. Uh, in Mark uh, eight thirty six, he says, What good is it for someone to gain the world, yet forfeit their soul? So that's the red, red letters. He says, what, what's, the, what's the point if you gain the world and yet lose your soul? There's something more. We are created for eternity. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. He says, man, there's something greater that we can invest our lives into. You're created for eternity. Don't live your life centering around trying to accumulate such things. And lastly, in Matthew 13, 22, he says, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word and it becomes unfruitful. Jesus recognizes that there is a deceitfulness of riches that will choke out your heart in God. There is a way to approach wealth and money that can actually ruin your soul. It can become something that will destroy you from the inside out. And so Jesus, again, the wisest man to ever live. Solomon's secondary. Jesus wins this one. And he's the wisest man to ever live. And he says, man, there is something that will choke your heart and life out. And it's the deceitfulness of chasing after riches. Don't give into such things. And so Jesus reminds us that eternity is written upon our hearts. And therefore, we're made for more than accumulating wealth. Now to Solomon. In Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10, we're going to jump in to the deep end together. You ready for it? Here we go. Ecclesiastes 5.10, it says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. What advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. 
And what gain is there to him who toils for the winds? Moreover, all of his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment and all the toils with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God For he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So no matter how much money a person has, there's always a desire for more. Like there's no arrival point if the search of our life is to attain and to accumulate wealth and riches and material things. See, we all know those people who don't beat around the bush. Maybe you're one of them. Um, Typically, Southern people struggle to do this, and we need to kind of work on that a bit more. Northern people have a a better tendency to just be very direct. I'm married to one from the North. I'm from the South. And so we've learned a lot about each other and this thing called marriage. And so, man, you know that person is just straight up with you, man. Like, you're going to ask a question, they're going to give you an answer. They're not going to give you like that roundabout, the Oreo. Like, they're just going to be direct with you. And, And man, Ecclesiastes is the exact same. It says the carrot's always going to exist. There's always going to be that thing in front of you that you're going to try to chase up. You can't get it, but it's always going to be looking, you're going to be staring at it all of your life, and it's not going to provide what you think it will. See, money won't bring you what you think it will bring you. I mentioned these guys last week, but to mention them again. John Rockefeller, his personal wealth in 1913 was about $900 million. Uh, So right up close to that billion uh, mark, which... Uh, is a good number, Uh, and he says this about money. Someone asks him, how much money does it take to make a person happy? And he gave that immortal answer, just a little bit more. Again, uh, the former president, Donald Trump, his personal wealth is well over a billion, 3.1, and and someone asked, how much money uh, would make you feel like you were making enough? And he said, about 10% more than I am making now. Telling you, Solomon, Rockefeller, Trump, the list goes on. They have the thing, and they're saying it's just not going to supply. Always just a little bit more. You won't be satisfied with more. See, saving and investing is amoral, uh, like money is amoral, which means it's just it's neutral. Uh, and there's wisdom in saving. There's wisdom in looking forward into the future and such things. But if this is your highest goal, and if this is your greatest security, you will be deeply disappointed. Yes, save, but above all, and trust your father. Trust that he cares for you. Trust that investing in the age to come is a greater, has a greater return on your investment than investing here. We're not going to hear that when we listen to uh, TV and, and marketing and such things, but man, Jesus would invite us to store up for something greater in heaven, our father who cares for us, he brings security to us. See, it says, Solomon says, you can't take it with you. And your dust and the dust you shall return. Just like you came uh, into the world through your mother, you're going to die. Like, Solomon's just very frank with us. And it's a reminder of the sorrow that exists here under the sun. This world is cursed by sin and death. 
It's deeply fractured, and it gives, prom- it gives us promises that it can't cash in on. Ecclesiastes reminds us of Eden, the early days, the genesis of the narrative of human history. Reminds us of Eden and the misery that sin and death have brought. And we will depart just as our great-grandparents have. See, eternity is written upon our hearts, and therefore we're made for more than accumulating. And then he kind of throws a curveball at the very end of chapter 5, and he reminds us to enjoy, again, over and over again. If you haven't been tracking with us, every once in a while, Solomon, in the midst of his kind of pessimism, this like dose of pessimism he keeps giving us, he pauses, and he says, but remember, remember to enjoy what's right before you. And so at the back end of this section on, this kind of middle section, because we're going to carry on with possessions in chapter 6, but right in the middle of this, he stops and he reminds us to enjoy. See, accumulation won't give you what you want, so enjoy what you have. He's reminding us to enjoy whatever your lot is, to enjoy it, not compare, but to enjoy. Enjoy the lot which is before you. I said this several weeks ago. But don't miss what you have for what you wish you had. Don't miss what you have, what's right before you, the gifts that you have right before you, the relationships, the the shelter, the things that we have right before us. Don't miss those things for the things that you wish you had. This point is crucial to understand Ecclesiastes. You won't be able to control life. You will not get what the treadmill promises to give you. You are more fragile than you want to admit. Therefore, enjoy the gifts that God has given to you right here and right now. We talked about this several weeks ago again, but there's this constant theme. And in our 20s, we, we have this dream after college where, where we are just going to settle in, want to get a house, want to get the job, want to get married. And then you get those things, potentially. And then there's immediately a next set of things that you want to have. And then you get those things. There's an immediate next set of things that you have. It's this never-ending cycle, and we forget to enjoy the season that we're in here and now. And that's what Solomon's telling to us. Don't look forward. Don't, don't be looking down the road for the next thing. Enjoy what you have because you're not guaranteed tomorrow, but to enjoy what's before you. Don't look for other times, future times. Don't compare your time with the next person, but learn to live in the moment, whatever the moment is choose to enjoy your lot, then keep choosing it. And how often do we miss what's right before us? We look back and we can regret. In that season, the good old days that we kind of can experience, we look back and we wish that we were more present in those moments. And Solomon's reminding us that there's an invitation right here and right now to enjoy the season of life you're in. If we're honest, this is where you find peace. You're not looking forward to the next thing. Not comparing yourself to the to the next set of people, being present with what's before you. There's a, there's a sense of peace that comes. There's a sense of joy that comes. You learn patience in those seasons. Maybe enjoyment is actually the soil for the fruit of the spirit to exist. That when we find ourselves present with God and with the gifts right before us, I believe that maybe that's where the fruit of the spirit really finds flourishment. Eternity is written upon our hearts. Therefore, we're made for more than accumulating. He continues in verse 1 of chapter 6. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. 
A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet, God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. Someone says, let me tell you an evil that is under the sun. A person who has wealth and riches and honor. So that he lacks nothing, the text said, of all that he desires. He has it made. He has the dream that we can potentially think about, so it seems. Yet, the yet is the evil, the, the pain that he feels. He's, he's, again, Wesley talked about this a few weeks ago, that he's kind of journaling of sorts. He's kind of uh, sharing his heart in this text. And he says, yet, there's this evil that God does not give him power to enjoy the wealth that he has. It's not that God is evil, that's not what he's saying, but, but it's hevel, it's this vanity, it's this frustration, it's like a fog that you're trying to grab and you just can't. He says, I can't understand such things. See, many well-off people cannot experience the enjoyment described here, not because, of they, la- not because they lack resources, but because God will not let them enjoy it. So it's interesting. You have this like tension here because, uh, and Wesley talked about this a few weeks ago. On, on one side, it's like Psalm is saying, enjoy what's right before you. And literally two verses later, he says, God may not allow you to enjoy it. So it's like, what, what, what is it, Solomon? And it, and it can be both. You can enjoy, you can be present with the gifts that God has right before you. But at the same time, God may not allow you to enjoy the wealth or the, the material things that you have. And so the question is, is that mean? Is it mean of God to put a block, uh, a glass ceiling, on some enjoyments of this life? And I would say no. I would say this is God's mercy, not giving us over to the cravings of our heart. Sometimes it's the mercy of God to prevent us from just having the things that we want. And that's what Solomon's saying. Enjoying and being present. But God will not allow you to enjoy and give yourself over to the cravings of your heart. Let me break it down like this. Halloween's coming up. I hope you guys are dressing up. I hope you're trick-or-treating. Uh, truly, like I hope that uh, you're making your house the one with the best candy. And you're like not turning your lights out. Like, like engage your neighbors. This is like the best day of the year to engage your neighbors. So just leave that there. If you want to be light in your neighborhood, start with candy. It's a beautiful thing. But it would be unkind when my kids come home with their pillowcases full of candy to just let them have all of it. Like, would that be a nice fatherly uh, gift to my children? Like, yeah, keep eating, man. More, more. Barf it up now, now. Keep having more. Like that would not be a kind act to give them over to what they want. Would not be kind. It would be kind to say, "Hey, you're good, man. You're gonna be up all night. Tomorrow's gonna be a train wreck for the whole family and for your teachers. So let's just curb it and allow this to be your ceiling." That's kindness. In the same way, God giving us over to whatever we want is actually his judgment and not his kindness. His kindness is not giving us over to things that hurt us. And in this text, that's what he's talking about. In Romans chapter 1, verse 24 through 28, Paul speaks to this as he begins to lay out the gospel to the church in Rome. And he says, 
in verse 24. Therefore God gave them up and the lust of their hearts to impurity and dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And it goes on and says, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to, to nature. Um, and, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And so he gave them over. That would be God's judgment. If that's what you want, you're going to have it. If that's what you want, you can have it. And it's God's kindness to, uh, in our lives, to give us a glass ceiling that we just feel an emptiness in our soul. Even though we got the thing that we were dreaming about getting, we hit this ceiling and it reminds us that that thing can't give us what only the creator can. That's his kindness to allow that to be a glass ceiling for us. That is God's kindness to not give us what we want if what we want will harm us. And Solomon, with all the wealth in the world, says, it won't give you what you think it will give you. It's a reminder that that thing wasn't the design of your heart. Eternity was written upon your heart. And then he fleshes this out with a few examples, one of which is pretty painful to hear, but we'll process through it together. In verse 3, he says, If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the, to the one place. All the toil of man is for the, his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to con conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is. And that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage of man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? So he flushes this out with a handful of examples, three in particular. The first example, I got a little bit, little bit of context here. And so a sign of God's blessing to the Jewish people were two things in particular. The first is that they would have many years, live a prosperous, long life. To the Jew, that was a sign of God's blessing. And the second would be having many children. That would be a second sign of God's blessing. And Solomon understood that as a Jewish man, and he entered into that context. And he says, man, if a man prospered and had a hundred sons... And I have three sons, so I can't imagine 100 sons. There's a lot of fighting and stuff. Um, but he's, he's emphasizing this abundant offspring that, that this person is having. 
You can have an abundant amount of offspring, a sign of external blessing, and still be absolutely miserable. That's what he's saying. Like you could have all the external things that you think are blessing and still be internally miserable. You can have the external trappings of a happy life, but still internally be out of whack. That's why keeping up with the Joneses is such a dumb thing to live for. I mean, think about it. If, if the Joneses are the people that are also trying to chase the carrot and can't find it, and their souls are empty, and we also are comparing ourselves to the Joneses. Sorry if your last name is the Joneses, but you understand the context, I hope. And so if I'm looking at them who are empty, and I see them externally as people that I want to pursue and be like, but their souls are empty, then I'm going to chase after the same thing that they're chasing after, and my soul's going to be empty just like them. Like, it's this treadmill that's just absurd. You know what a treadmill is? Like you go into the gym and you see the treadmill that's sitting there. There's typically many of them, not always many people on them, and they always have these TVs in front of them. So you go and you stand on this treadmill, and the goal is to kind of get lost and pretend that you're not on this stupid conveyor belt that's just spinning over and over again. You're just standing and you're running in place, and so they put a TV on front of it. Why? So you can pretend like you're not on a treadmill. Just try to get lost in this show, get lost with sports, get lost with whatever you're lost, Food Network or something. And so for 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes, you're trying to pretend like you're not on a treadmill, though you are on a treadmill. Treadmills are never fun. And we live a life on a treadmill. And the Joneses are like the TV that we're looking at. And we can forget that we're actually on a treadmill chasing after something that's not going to give us what our souls are looking for. Keeping up with the Joneses is not wise. Chasing someone who is chasing after the tail. It's like the blind leading the blind. Chasing a carrot you can never grab. And Solomon said, he's waving his arms in the air and he's yelling, don't do it. It's not wise. Take a step back. Recognize that they're not as cool as you think they are and recognize what you ought to live your life for. He says, having these hundred sons and living this miserable life is uh, worse than a stillborn. And so we got to be honest here for a moment. He says, and this is painful because I've experienced this firsthand. I know some of you have. Miscarriage is real, and it's extremely painful. And you read a comment like Solomon here. He had 700 wives, and not one of them filtered this statement. Like, he could have been a little more kinder here, um, but he's just being himself. And so that's on him. But, man, God is so aware of pain. He's so aware of grief and loss. Some of you have struggled to get pregnant. Some of you have longed to have children. Some of you have had uh, miscarriages. Some of you, man, carry a deep sense of pain. I just want to say that the Bible doesn't belittle that reality. God enters into the pain of our story. He has entered into the pain of my wife and I's story as we've found ourselves holding our 20-week-old that um, that miscarried. And we, we've experienced this first time. When I first read that this, I'm like, God, man, you are just so brutal. This is like super intense. But the point of this is a hyperbole. He's exaggerating to try to get his point across. Again, could have filtered it through one of his 700 wives, but he didn't. And so this is rhythmic. This is poetic. That's the kind of statement it is. And it's, he's trying to hit home. He's trying to make a point, jostling, but making a point. So this stillborn has rest, but this person who's chasing after affluence and wealth won't. The stillborn possesses 
the riches of rest and provision with God that the wealthy one knows nothing of. So it's a tragic life to live your life on that treadmill. He says it's better for a child to at least have rest than for this person to live their whole life in misery. That's the first example he gives. The second is uh, this example of this person who lives thousand years twice over. Man, it's, it's, and he talks about the vanity therein. Man, you live the age of Methuselah, who's the oldest person in the Bible. You live twice over to the age of Methuselah, and it's still meaningless because eventually, because we live in this broken world, you're still eventually going to die. That's what he's mentioning here. See, sin and death has deeply affected our lives, friends. Romans 8 tells us that creation groans. There's this groan. Man, you go to the most beautiful waterfall, the most beautiful canyon, the most beautiful set of mountains, and as beautiful as they are, it's but a shadow. It's but black and white in comparison to the beauty that God designed this place to be. Death spoils life. It's the great equalizer for us. Even the beauty of this life is but a mere shadow. Death won't have the final word. It does have a word, but it doesn't have the final word. See, eternity is written upon our hearts, and therefore we're made for more than accumulating. And simply put, this third example, he just says that everybody works to provide and to eventually eat. So we're all on the same playing field, all work under the sun, working for our next meal. See, through this text, Solomon is reminding us, eternity is written on our hearts, and therefore we're made for more than accumulating. Solomon, like the true sage, the ultimate sage, the great sage Jesus, invites us into a life that is greater than accumulating. We gather this morning to remember the story of Jesus. We come here because we want to follow Jesus. And we remember that there is a greater narrative that he's writing, a greater uh, gift, a greater target to aim for than the one this world gives us. As followers of Jesus, our security is not in what we have. Our security is in who has us. Truly, our security is not in what we have. It's not in our growing or shrinking retirement account. Our security is not there. Our eternity, our, our security is in the one who holds us and has us. In Hebrews 13:5, the writer says this, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. And we'll pause there for a second. It says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. And to be curious with like, if we were to fill in the blank with the latter statement that he would make, I don't think that we would say what he, the writer, says. He says, make sure your heart's free from the love of money. He says, be content, be present with what's right before you. And then he makes this statement. It's referencing a passage in the Old Testament. He says, for he has said, this is the, the therefore, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So the way that we can be freed, our grip clinging to the love of money, our grip clinging to security of this world, our grip clinging to try to just find a sense of stability in the, this life, the way that frees our grip is remembering that our Father will never leave us or forsake us. 
Like that's the healing balm. That's the, the thing that pries our hands free from trying to find security in this life. It's knowing that there is one greater than you that holds you together. And regardless of what comes your way, there is one who holds you and cares for you and loves you. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Dallas Willard said, he said, it's not on the screen, but I'll read it. He says, it is love of God, admiration and confidence in his greatness and goodness and the regular experience of his care that free us from the burden of looking out for ourselves. The most of the time, our accumulation is an insecurity to try to make sure that our future is secure. So we live our lives in this place of insecurity, trying to bring some stability to our future. And what Dallas would say, which is referencing Hebrews 13, 5, is that when you experience God's care for you, the Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. When you remember that he really does care for you, not just on Sunday morning, like when we gather, but like Monday through Saturday, he, he's like peacing out. He's busy. He's a busy guy. And he, your life is like okay, and he's not really worried about you. No, 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 no. The Lord is your shepherd. You have everything you need. When we experience the care of God, the creator, it liberates us. It breaks the chains off of us of, of attempting to uh, have this burden that is one of looking out for ourselves. Friends, this morning, this morning, God wants to remind you that he will never leave you nor forsake you. He wants to remind you that he is your shepherd. Whether life's like going really good or life is really hard or just somewhere in the middle, that he cares for you and he wants you to trust him with your life. So we don't need what we don't have because what we have, we could have never dreamed of. God has written himself into our story. He's not aloof. He's not created and then just detached moving on to the next galaxy to create the next thing. Like, he is present. He is Emmanuel. He is with us. And we're a part of the story of God. We're in the middle of God at work. We're in the middle of this great tale where there is an evil sorcerer. We're in this great tale where we really are under enchantment. We're in this great tale where there is a noble prince, and his name is Jesus, who is broken the enchantment, that we really are uh, indeed looking for the one who has killed death and who will swallow it forever. And we are spiritual creatures looking for spiritual realities. We are loved by God. He's offered himself to us, and our security is now his, and we can trust that he holds our life together. And so Solomon's reminding us of wealth and the glass ceiling that it is. And then a step further, the gospel reminds us that we have security in our Father. He will never leave us nor forsake us. And the experience of his care liberates us from the burden of looking out for ourselves. You don't have to look out for yourself. Maybe growing up you felt like you needed to. Maybe you grew up in a family and you felt like you were isolated and your parents weren't present protecting you. And you felt like you needed to just guard your life. 
Or maybe your parents did such a good job that you feel a sense of dependence on them. And man, when they croak, what happens? Like, for real. And you have a God who cares for you. And regardless of what's going on in your life and what your upbringing was, he provides a sense of security. Not a sense of security. He provides security to you that brings stability that the world knows nothing of. And that's the gospel to us this morning. He will never forsake you. He loves you. And he's with you. Not just, just last thought, not just if you're doing well. And if your life feels like a train wreck right now, he's secure. And you can run to him. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He didn't say, hey, get your life together, because that's kind of heavy for me, and I really just don't like your burdens. And so just deal with it, go to the counselor, get it squared away, and then come to me. You know, he says, come to me if you're weary, you're jacked, and I will give you rest. Security is in him, not our behavior. So we cling to that this morning. Amen? Let's pray. As that song said this morning, now I can see your love is better than anything else I see. Lord, we remember the prayer of Paul, where he says that that we would know, comprehend with all of the saints, what is the length and width and depth and height of the love of Jesus, that we would know the love of Jesus that surpasses knowledge, that you would fill us to the fullness of God. Lord, this morning, we confess that we're prone to wander, to run from such truths and try to find security in this world. And through this passage in Ecclesiastes, we remember that it can't. And so, Lord, I pray that you would adjust our hearts, soften our hearts to experience your care. We don't have to look out for ourselves. We have a shepherd. We have a shepherd, and because of him, we have everything we need. Lord, meet us. We're in a variety of places. And this morning, I ask that you would meet our hearts, remembering your care, remembering you will never leave us or forsake us. In Jesus' name, amen.